Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it's December 17th, 2020. Of course, it's a podcast. You can listen at any time. That voice at the at the outset was, of course, President-elect Joe Biden, one of his finest moments uh, from the summer. Who can who can forget that summer, uh, that debate? Oh, pl- play, play the radio. I don't know, record, whatever it is. Leave play the radio. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone, make sure the kids hear words. Okay, thanks, Joe. Uh, While we're on the topic of Joe Biden, there's a headline that's uh, appearing right now live from the New York Times. I'm not reading a newspaper. I'm actually looking on my phone. Biden warns defund the police slogan could hurt Democrats in Georgia. Biden warns defund the police slogan could hurt Democrats in Georgia. President-elect Joe Biden urged activists to remain quiet about police overhaul plans until after the... I'm sorry, I can't even get it out. No, don't let them know beforehand. Just do it. Like, that's going to stop Republic. Anyway, and just, you know what? I should stop and introduce my guest uh, and let him uh, chime in on that. Uh, so as we do with all bonus guests, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Well, hi, everybody. Um, it's great to be back on the show. I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University. Um, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and the kids are all left. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the absolute um, catastrophic mess that our politics are right now. Let's do it. All right, let's let's get down and dirty, uh, uh, David Ferris. And as I was uh, telling you, I was going to allude to your last appearance with me uh, on this illustrious podcast, uh, and that was on election night. Uh, and leading up to that, uh, you'd been very confident about a Democratic triumph on election night, and the early votes were coming in were not looking good for the Democrats. And I believe I instructed everybody in your household to remove all razors from anywhere near uh, David Ferris. Just clear the pills away from the guy. You're a little down. You're a little down in the dumps on election night. Are you yeah. feeling better about things uh, all these weeks later? Well, I mean, yes and no. The, we, we averted the worst case scenario that, it, that looked possible on election night, which was that Donald Trump would win re-election as president of the United States. Um, and so in, in avoiding that catastrophe, a lot, of, a lot of good possibilities got unlocked. But the, the second piece of it, which, uh, which I was worried about on election night and which did happen, is that uh, the things did not go well in the Senate. And so that we now need to miracle both of these Georgia runoffs on January 5th in order to have a 50-50 uh, 
uh, majority in the Senate uh, with the tiebreaker is, uh, is cast by Vice President Harris. And so that's a nightmare uh, because uh, Democrats really need unified control in D.C. to do any things I've been talking about for years, but also just routine stuff like um, improving the lives of the American people because the Republican Party um, has not just become a, a sort of an authoritarian anti-system party, but they also just are not interested in, in helping people survive the pandemic and uh, have health care and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I feel like some of the pessimism from, from election night was was justified. <laughs> Um, and uh, I, I feel like I remember saying, I, I still think that Biden was going to pull it out. Um, and he did, but it was, it was depressingly close. You yeah. know, I, I just, uh, it's, I just don't know. I, I don't understand how, how President Trump could have done a worse job governing the country, over, especially over the past year. Um, so it's, it, I guess the, the dispiriting part is I don't know how the national environment could be better for Democrats than it was this year. And if we can't get across the finish line with a with a trifecta with what what has been happening in this country, um, it's just it's increasingly hard to imagine how we can do it. You know, I just I think a lot of people just don't have any answers at this point, and and that's that's just a really hard place to be in. Yeah, well, we usually I usually turn to you looking for answers, so you're gonna have to come up with some uh, like really fast. Uh, and let's um, let me just make clear. Uh, the election night illusion I made uh, when David was on on election night, what got us both feeling bad was that Florida was clearly was the we were waiting for Florida to go for Biden. And David, if Florida had gone for Biden, it would have been obvious to the two of to the both of us that it was going to be a landslide in actuality. The landslide occurred. I mean, (laughs) you got 306 electoral college votes, which is what Trump got against uh, Hillary Clinton. And Trump called that a landslide. He won, Joe Biden, by over 7 million. I haven't looked lately, maybe over 8 million by now. I haven't taken a look lately. That is um, the largest uh, amount of votes that uh, a challenger got against an incumbent president. I think you got to go back to Reagan Carter. So... It was a, a great night for Joe Biden, but it got off to a bad start. And that's what got you and my and me feeling bad. All right. So let's just, I had to clear that up the, the yeah, where we were. Um, things will look a lot better uh, since then in, te- in terms of Biden. Let's talk about the Senate. Let's just try to we've had enough time now to sift through. Uh, you were. I shared your confidence. I'm just going to throw you under a bus. I shared your confidence. I was stunned that the Democrats didn't win Maine. You know, it was Susan Collins. I couldn't believe uh, they could. Like that's the one I'm still, I still just, I, I just, I look at the results and I just blink in disbelief. I just, I just can't believe it. <laughs> so any theories that you have, uh, any thoughts that you have about what went down? Yeah, I do. I have a, I have a kind of unifying theory of the, like a unified theory of the Senate disaster. Which is that? Um, which is that Biden ran a campaign that was primarily about Trump and decency and, and sort of restoring civility and a, and a return to normal. And um, and neither Biden at the convention. Remember, we talked at the, uh, just right after the DNC. I said I said some of this stuff. I was like, I don't understand why they didn't go after Republicans at that convention. In fact, what they did was they centered Republicans. Yes. Um, 
in an, in an effort to get the moderate, you know, Republican or former Republican vote in the suburbs. And in so doing, uh, I, I don't have like data to back this up, right? But this is just my best reading of the election at this moment, mm-hmm. which is that that strategy, which was adhered to by most Democratic Senate candidates too, right? They ran really milquetoast campaigns, um, keep away campaigns, right? Like we're winning, let's just not make waves. Um, and what that did was it gave, I think, those moderate Republican voters who voted for Biden um, in places like Maine uh, permission to go down ballot and, and vote for Republicans, you know, because nobody had made a convincing case that the Republican Party was responsible for any of this. Um, and so I think there was some a really significant number of people who did this in Maine, uh, where they said, yeah, obviously, we're t- we got to really, we got to really this Trump guy. But Susan Collins is okay, right? Like, no one has really said anything bad about her except Sarah Gideon. Um, and she didn't really do a very good job of it either. Um, and so I think that there's a combination of that, um, that implied ticket splitting where, where the party itself gave permission to Republicans to, to get rid of Trump, but to preserve their Senate majority. And then just bad messaging. You know, I, I, <clears throat> as part of the class that I'm teaching, I, I watched tons of ads for the U.S. Senate uh, by, our, by our candidates. And I got to tell you, all, like, if, if I didn't know anything else about politics, um, and I just had watched those Senate ads, I would have assumed that the 2020 presidential election was about pre-existing conditions. Uh, <laughs> that was the thing that, that was the most ad was like, Sarah Gideon will protect your pre-existing conditions and Cal Cunningham will protect uh, pre-existing conditions. And it's like, that's not a good message when the other team is also lying <laughs> and saying, we're not going to touch your, your coverage for pre-existing conditions. And so you just had two, you had two candidates saying they were going to do the same thing. Um, and the Democratic candidates really not offering much of a positive vision of what they did want to do with power. It was about COVID or it was about, um, it was about pre-existing conditions, like one piece of the healthcare bill. Um, and so I think that the, the failure to advance a more comprehensive vision of what Democrats would want to do with the Senate, the failure to tell voters that we need the Senate, you know, did you, do you remember Biden ever saying, uh, folks, you know, no malarkey here. Got to tell you, it's just my dad said, Joey, we got to get the Senate too. Um, <laughs> he didn't that, you know, like the, the, the top of the ticket made yeah. no case, no case whatsoever for why Democrats might need unified control of Washington. Yeah. And so that, yeah, I mean, that killed them, you know? Uh, uh, that is well put. And, uh, just let's talk about the pre-existing conditions. I was smiling when you were saying you can't see me because I don't have a computer modern enough with a camera. Though that's, I haven't told you this, David, that's a New Year's resolution. I'm actually going to get a, a new monitor so my guests can see me, okay? Yeah, um, Ben. We had, we had so much fun in the studio. I know, I know. I, I miss those days, although I don't think they're ever coming back. But anyway, all right, pre-existing conditions. But that is just like the most namby-pamby uh, way to handle our yeah. health care crisis in this country. The Democrats are so afraid. They're so terrified of being accused of being a socialist, which they're going to get accused of anyway. Yeah, that yeah. They think they did a focus group, and the focus group said, one thing everybody believes in is pre-existing conditions. And so, okay, as opposed to Medicare for all, don't say that, you know. And yeah, so they settle on pre-existing conditions. And Trey, you're right. Trump just lies and says, "I'm going to keep pre-existing conditions." Yeah, and all, all the GOP Senate candidates did too. They just lied through their teeth. Um, and not only did we not do a particularly job, a good job of countering those lies, 
Um, but if you, you know, if you were to sit down and vote, you watch the 10 Senate ads by Cal Cunningham and you ask the voter, what would Cal Cunningham like to do when he is sent to DC? I don't know what you would come up with, you know, other than, um, you know, send uh, racy texts to, to members of the staff. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I think that really hurt them. And it's frustrating because it's the whole strategy seems like it was designed, you know, the day after they won the, the fight over the Affordable Care Act in, yeah. in, in the Senate in 2017. And they were like, what worked here, folks? Uh, Pre existing conditions, right? Fast forward three years. No new ideas, right? They were all running as fast as they could away from Medicare for all because that's what the top of the ticket wanted. Um, and it, it didn't help. You know, the, the, people want to say this was defund the police. Like, give me a break. You know, um, th- there's no evidence that when people started using this phrase that Biden's polling dipped or that any of the Senate candidates polling dipped. Um, and you, you can stipulate that the polling seems to have been off systematically by a few points. But even granting that, right, the, the data that we do have still has trends in it. And there's just no evidence that, that the fact that defund the police was out there in, in the ether somewhere um, hurt our candidates because they all ran away from it as fast as they could. And uh, I, I just think it's a silly way to, uh, to allocate blame for uh, what I think is a party-wide failure to offer a compelling vision to voters. Or if you think that like that vision is never going to reach uh, conservatives anyway because they're in this like closed information loop. Um, and there was no strategy to, to, to mobilize um, people around a, a more uh, um, a more compelling narrative about why we need to give Democrats control of the U.S. Senate in these critical swing states. And the thing that just blows my mind is they had more money than God, all these candidates. You know, uh, Sarah Gideon left $14 million in the bank. Like, what would she have done with it anyway? You know, um, it, it's like Maine, you know, <laughs> you could run 20 Senate elections in Maine for $14 million. Yeah cost like a dollar to take out an ad in, in, in Portland. So uh, um, it, it just, uh, you know, I, th- I think the there's a lot of blame shifting going on here, which is weird because this is, you know, this is the party that won the election and the party that won the election is having the, the circular firing squad. But there is an extent to which I, I think that it really feels like the moderate wing is pointing fingers at activists over whom we have no control anyway. Like, it's not like there's a bureau of uh, slogans that we can go to and say, I, I demand that you defund <laughs> the police. You put it back in your mouths and you <laughs> men in black. Like, what were they supposed to do? Yeah. You know, call up the, the Black Lives Matter people and be like, listen, I really think this is hurting Sarah Gideon. So could you? Uh, <laughs> there's, no, there's no black people in Maine anyway. You know yeah, I know. <laughs> well, so, and to the point that we began uh, with that headline I read, we're here. We are heading down this winner takes all elections for the Senate. And you, by the way, predicted it. You had at one point uh, you came on the show. You have Georgia on my mind. That's what you were singing. Uh, and you were talking. It's going to come down to these elections. Uh, and Joe Biden on the eve of the election. And I just read the headline to fund the police hurts us. Uh, in Georgia, that's the head. I have not read the article. I just read the uh, the headline and then the the text right under the headline, um, which where he says, "Wait till after the election," which just kind of underscores everything that Republicans say about Democrats. You can't trust them. You know, they say one thing. Uh, it's wait till after the election. Then, uh, so you know, if you were advising. Uh, the the senatorial candidates in Georgia on the issue of policing. 
and the issue of defunding the police, what would your advice be? I think that my advice would be the same that, that Biden is giving them, which is like, don't use that particular phrase. Okay, that, that particular phrase does not pull well. Um, what's maddening to me about this controversy is that that phrase did not come out of the mouths of any Senate candidate in the United States of the Democratic Party, right? Like, um, I, I'm all for a conversation that's like, um, how can we present the idea of reallocating funding from the police to like social organizations and like take the burden of like, you know, social services off of police who are not trained to do those things and end up like shooting people who are mentally ill. How can we reallocate that burden to another public sector? And, and like, what's the best way? Like, what's the best slogan? Um, what's, the be- what's the best way to sell that plan to the American people? But that's not the debate that we're having here right now. Right? The debate that we're having here is like uh, the moderate wing of the party is yelling at the, Ger- the Georgia Senate candidates who are not saying defund the police. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yelling at them about it. And it's like, what are they supposed to do? Like, should John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnock like, get together and like burn an effigy uh, uh, <laughs> of the slogan itself? You know, like, like drums beating, you know, like a ritual where we're like, you know, we hereby confirm the police to hell. You know, like, I just don't know what they think is going on here. Because yeah. all of the candidates, they don't want anything to do with this phrase. Like, every, they, they can all open a piece of paper and read a poll that, that it, that's not super popular. Um, it's not the centerpiece of anyone's campaign. It's not what they're running on. Um, so just, just shut up about it <laughs> until, until later, like win, win the runoffs. And then we, then we can start pointing fingers at each other about whose slogans hurt who, right? Like the, the thing that they should be thinking about is not what slogans are going to hurt Warnick and Asaf, but what slogans are going to help them? You know, like what ideas, uh, can, can they present to the voters in Georgia uh, that, that will help them win those elections? And to me, it's so simple. Um, and that is the, the message is like, dear Georgia, <laughs> you voted for Joe Biden. Remember just a few weeks ago, yeah. um, wouldn't you like Joe Biden to be able to do things with his power? Um, wouldn't you like a coronavirus relief package? Well, if you want that, can I recommend that you not allow Mitch McConnell to remain the de facto president of the United States? You know, yeah. you make the, you nationalize the election, you make it about McConnell. You make it about corruption and insider trading. Ossoff is doing some of this stuff, right, to, be, to be fair to him. And I think Warnick is running a pretty good campaign, too. So I'm not really digging at the candidates themselves as much as I am about the discourse surrounding it. And I wish that some of the stuff that happened during the campaign itself, where you link the outcome of the presidential election to the ability of the president to govern. Um, and there were, there were too many people, I think, whose instincts were like, uh, you know, I want to put a check on Joe Biden. And I don't think people really understand what that means. That means that every cabinet pick is going to be this like knockdown, drag out fight with Mitch McConnell. Um, that means that we're not going to get the stimulus we need to get the, the economy started. And it means Republicans are going to go right back to this austerity politics. And they're going to point the fingers at us when the, when the economy recovers more slowly than it should. It's just the Obama playbook all over again. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, yeah. No, when I, when I read that headline uh, that I just literally read uh, about Biden and defund the police, I had a flashback to Bill Clinton and his sister soldier moment uh, and him rushing back uh, to make sure that I think his name is Ricky Lee uh, Proctor was killed. Uh, Democrats always, 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 you know, running to the center are trying to convince voters that they're not really, they're not radicals. Like they buy into the worst rhetoric that the Republicans say about them. And 
I don't see any Republicans doing anything remotely like they were saddled, David Ferris, with the worst, most abomin the worst abomination of a president or any kind of politician I think I've ever seen in my life. And that includes Richard Nixon, a drunken insomniac who was bombing countries at four in the morning. Okay, I've lived through Nixon. I think Trump, I, I'm, I, I vacillate day to day. Which one was worse, Trump or Nixon? Yeah. Um, but the, the, no Republican senator, I mean, they don't care what Democrats say about Trump. They stand with them. So, I, yes, I think you're right. I think constantly apologizing for what one wing of your party is saying, I don't think that's a winning strategy for uh, Democrats to be following. No, it's not. Um, and what's what's so frustrating about it is that the Republicans don't do this at all. You know, like Democrats are, are sort of frog marched out on a plank every four years and forced to like publicly execute some activist, some leftist. You know, yeah. like just remember in 08, it was it was Reverend Wright for Obama. Yes, Jeremiah Wright. Yeah, like uh, they got to distance yourself from this from your own pastor, right? Meanwhile. <laughs> Meanwhile, Republicans right now, today, as we live and breathe, are, are like 18 Republican attorneys general have signed a, a ridiculous and absurd brief before the United States Supreme Court to steal the election, right? And, and meanwhile, we're asking our Senate candidates to distance themselves from a from a key member of our coalition, right? While we're not we're not really saying much of anything about the GOP's attempt to to overthrow the the Democratic government of the United States. Like that should also be a thing that Asaf and Warnock are talking about. Um, you know, if you if you want to stop this from happening again, uh, you have to give Democrats the Senate. You have to give them the ability to reform our electoral system um, and 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 to to make appointments to the Supreme Court. You have to give them the ability um, to to reform our voting laws um, and to to systematize them. Don't use the word systematize in an ad. Okay, I'm just thinking out loud here, but <laughs> yeah, please don't. Like, stop, stop arguing amongst yourselves about a slogan that you all agreed not to use months ago and start thinking about um, the very open and brazen and, and very, it won't be successful, but, it, it, you know, it's too close for comfort, the, the attempt of, of the Republican Party to steal this election. It's, it's too close for comfort. It's very unsettling. Oh, no, this, uh, th this last-ditched Hail Mary effort I already discussed this earlier in the show. Uh, I, I find very frightening. And again, it's the um, the attorney general uh, from Texas, whose name at the moment escapes me. I think it's uh, Ken uh, Paxton, I believe his name is, who himself is under indictment, by the way. I just want to point that out on a securities fraud scheme and who has been accused of uh, bribery. Uh, so Mr. Law and Order. Uh, he's initiated the most ultimate Hail Mary uh, in the history of, of court cases. He's asking the Supreme Court to essentially reverse the election and give it to Trump on the grounds of unseen evidence. And his essential argument, David, is that the cheating that the Democrats did was so brilliant that you can't see the evidence of it. So you just have to it's like I, I alluded like saying you have like a, a secret friend that nobody can see. You know, but that you, you're walking down the street and you're talking to your secret friend. But believe me, he's really there. And 17 attorney generals throughout the state, throughout the country, signed on to it, all Republicans. And I still have no faith in Alito, Thomas, or Kavanaugh 
to vote against it. I, their hatred for the Democrats is so intense that I got to see it to believe it, David, that they won't side with this nutcase from Texas. I'm hoping that Gorsuch has a little more restraint, but I take it seriously. I take it as a serious threat. Yeah. I mean, I think if they were going to do it, they would have sided with the Republicans on the Pennsylvania lawsuit, which was very similar. There's, there's two things going on here. Um, in this lawsuit, one of which does not particularly concern me, even with the Supreme Court, and one of which does. Um, the part that does not concern me is the attempt to have all of the votes <laughs> thrown out. <laughs> Four states thrown. I'm sorry, it's just so preposterous. Uh, they want to throw out all the votes because they're like the, you know, the expansion of mail-in voting was unconstitutional because it was done without Republican legislative legislative authority, which is nonsense because the Republican Party in Pennsylvania agreed to put these uh, changes to mail-in voting through through the regular order process. Like they did it themselves and now they're signing this brief. It's just, it's just absurd. Um, and so I'm not worried about that. There's a lot of Supreme Court precedent um, that you, you can't just retroactively invalidate an election, even though the procedures were agreed upon by state legislatures and governors and were uncontroversial at the time. It's, it's a ridiculous suit. It will be, I don't think it will get any votes on the Supreme Court like that piece of it. What concerns me is that the suit also claims that the, the, the state legislatures have the power, mm. uh, the plenary authority to appoint electors to the Electoral College and that the Constitution grants them that power and that if they don't like the election result, they can just set it aside. Um, and I, I'm not very concerned about this, but it does seem like an argument that the lunatics on the Supreme Court um, might be willing to endorse in some way, shape or form. And what that would do is it would preserve the outcome of this election but it would throw 2024 under this huge cloud of, of, uh, of suspicion and, and contention by essentially granting state legislatures the power to appoint electors no matter what, uh, no matter what the people say. So I want to put a marker down. I don't think they're going to do that either. Um, but the fact that we're having this conversation is just the most ridiculous thing. Uh, the fact that 18 attorneys general have, have signed this letter, that, uh, that last time I looked, 109 Republican members of the House have, have signed a brief in support of this ridiculous lawsuit to, to disenfranchise millions of people and, and over, overturn the results of a Democratic election. Um, it's, it's scary. And I keep saying to people, you know, the institutions themselves are not magic. Right? The institutions only work if the people that inhabit them uh, agree to abide by their rules and abide by precedent and to do the right thing. And I, I've been saying this for weeks, though, that we're only like one or two election cycles away from those positions um, that are currently inhabited by uh, horrible Republicans, but who nevertheless, I guess at the end of the day, have some baseline sense of decency, like um, I'm going to get the first name right because I screwed this up on our last podcast, Ben. Brian Kemp. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, Matt, not Matt Kemp. Brian Kemp. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Brian Kemp was not willing to sign on to this, right? And, and his uh, Secretary of State was not willing to sign on to any of this. But like fast forward two years, you know, like what if a Republican wins the governor's race in Pennsylvania in 2022? What if a Republican beats Tony Evers in Wisconsin? And then you have these Republican legislatures and a Republican governor and a Republican secretary, secretary of state all overseeing the election. Uh, and they're, they're all from like the coup caucus of the, of the, of the, of the Republican Party um, that just their, their, uh, their fundamental sort of rule is that Democrats may not win elections. What happens then? Yeah. You know, that's what really scares me. Um, I, I went through like a seven day period where I was really worried about this for this year. Um, 
And uh, when the court decision started, you know, they started to get, getting smacked down <laughs> across the board in court. It, it reassured me that, that Joe Biden will, in fact, take office on, on January 20th. But I'm very, very concerned about the future. Um, that is the, the number of Republicans who are willing to endorse this open attempt to overthrow Democratic rule is, uh, I don't know how, how else to put it. It's chilling. Well, uh, this is why, just listening to what you said, this is why it's so important, in my humble opinion, uh, for Joe Biden and the Democratic leadership to make it clear what's at stake in Georgia, as opposed to chastising activists who have nothing to do with the uh, Warnock or Ossoff campaign calling for defund the police. Instead of doing that, they should be reminding people what's at stake and highlighting the um, Supreme Court, um, the lawsuit, this Hail Mary. And I, what I find troubling, uh, David, is that like Democrats have drifted away from this. It's like when I, I follow obsessively the news cycles on the issue of the challenges that Trump have made to uh, to our Constitution, to our democracy. And it's always like, well, a Democrat said it, but of course, that's a Democrat. So they, they highlight on what Republicans have said. Well, we found one Republican, like the Secretary of State of Georgia, make a big deal about that. Well, wait, wait, what about what the Democrats said? You know, and they're like, that. well, that doesn't matter. It's just a Democrat. I just think the Democrats as a party should seize control of it and assert themselves and let people know what Trump and the Republicans are trying to do. And yet, what's the headline that I just read to you? On the eve, it's to fund the police. Yeah. You know what it's like, Ben? It's like if um, it's like if somebody broke into your house and uh, they started trying to shoot you to death and you realize that they were they had it was just they were like blank bullets and that they couldn't actually succeed. And you were and your attitude was like, well, that's blanks. It's fine. You know, I, 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 I stipulate that there's a person in my living room trying to shoot me to death. But it's not live ammunition, and it, it, it should be fine. Yes, there is a crowd of people outside trying to do the same thing, but don't worry about it. Um, I'm focused on getting dinner ready tonight. Yeah. It's I, I have dinner on the table by 6 p.m., irrespective of the guy trying to shoot me to death. You know, And uh, that's kind of how I feel about what Biden is doing right now, um, which is that he is doing – he's trying to do this, like, you know, the no drama Obama thing, where it's like, you know, just brush, just brush it off. Like, yeah, sure, they're trying to steal the election, but, like, I'm the president-elect – and I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, uh, all these people that no one has ever heard of uh, that I'm going to appoint to key cabinet positions <laughs> instead of the, the massive systematic attempt that is taking place across the Republican Party of the United States to steal the election. Yeah. Um, and so I don't understand why they're not having press conferences every day, uh, railing against this stuff, pr- presenting our side of the case, um, um, indicting key Republicans for not speaking out, um, putting ads out every day, every minute of the day in Georgia. Like David Perdue will not denounce this attempt to steal the election. Um, uh, Kelly, what's this awful person? Say? Kelly Loeffler. Loeffler yeah. Just, just one of the worst, really. She's, she's dreadful. Uh, Kelly Loeffler will not denounce this attempt to, to, to throw out all the votes of, of people in four states in this country. Um, and instead, they're just acting like, um, you know, like the institutions will save us. And it's just, it's maddening to me. Um, I, I realize that it has, it has that strategy has so far, and going back to the summer, right? The strategy of like, don't be mean to Republicans, um, make it about Trump, make it about COVID, succeeded in getting Joe Biden elected and it will succeed in getting Joe Biden inaugurated. 
Beyond that, it's a disaster. It's been a disaster for the Senate. It was a disaster in the House. And it is a disaster for our attempts to push back long term on this erosion in, in, in the baseline belief among not just elite Republicans, but rank and file Republicans, the, the belief in democratic procedures in this country. And it's, uh, I, just, I just shudder to think what's going to happen in the next two cycles if some of this stuff is not addressed. If we don't win these runoffs in Georgia, um, there's very little that we can do at the national level to shore up the electoral system. And, you know, I, I don't have any faith that, that Biden is, is going to make this a, a critical issue. I think that he wants to focus on other things. Well, I, um, I like to point out how uh, our conversation all com- ties together at some point before we leave Georgia. And I'm thinking you made an allusion to uh, Reverend Wright, Jeremiah Wright, uh, who was uh, Barack Obama's uh, pastor in Chicago at Trinity uh, Church until um, Obama came under uh, fire for having him as a pastor, so he threw him under the bus. Uh, <laughs> great moments in Barack Obama's career. Um, but uh, his name was resurrected. I don't know if you saw this. I, I see this, David, because as you know, I'm the recipient of approximately 20 to 25 fundraising pitches, email pitches an hour. <laughs> Some I must have done something wrong in a previous life. The Republicans have got a hold of me, so I get literally that many. And out of nowhere... Marjorie Taylor Greene, I hope I'm getting those last names right because I have a tendency to reverse the names, but she's the uh, newly elected congresswoman from Georgia uh, who's a QAnon supporter and is batshit crazy. And she sent me, she sent me an email imploring me to send money on behalf of the Republican senatorial candidates because um, Warnock, uh, has connections to drum roll, please. Jeremiah Wright. She revived the name. I'm like, does anybody even remember? Je-? And so they don't quit, and don't and and they don't quit. And I'm with you on this. Um, I don't. I don't even buy. I got to tell you, there's two prevailing theories on this, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. One prevailing theory is that only a moderate centrist like Joe Biden could have won this election that he's appealed to Republicans. And even if that was the case now, if it wasn't for the COVID, Donald Trump would have won. And David, I'm like, you, I, you guys can't really have both. You know what I mean? It's like, if, if like, if the impulse was that, if that drove people to vote was a hatred of Donald Trump, that existed without COVID. Right. So this, you know, the notion that it was an like the notion that was an anti-Trump rebellion would have had, it would have existed without COVID. Uh, and so why do you have to betray all the things you supposedly believe in? So I, I don't buy the do you follow me? I don't buy the prevailing. I'm like sort of hostile to the whole discourse of speculating who who would have won or who would have lost if somebody else had been nominated. Because you have to go back in time and like replay six months of history, right? And pe- people say, oh, well, if you had nominated Warren or Sanders, um, they would have lost because they were polling, you know, whatever, two points behind Biden against Trump consistently. And, and you're like, okay, sure. Um, but maybe Bernie Sanders would have, you know, turned some of those Latino voters in, in Texas that, that, uh, that drove up or, or in, in 
well, not in Florida, but, but yeah, not in Florida. <laughs> Those Cuban Americans are not voting for Bernie. Yeah. Or, or maybe Warner Sanders would have made a more compelling argument against not just Trump, but the Republican party um, and brought more people into the process. Or maybe they would have spiked youth turnout. Right? Like you, you may dismiss that out of hand and say, well, the young people didn't turn out for them in the primary. So why would they do it now? But you don't know, right? Like that was part of their theory of the case is that they would have activated other parts of the coalition. Um, and those other parts of the coalition would have come out and provided basically the same margin of victory that Biden got. And so I would throw this back at people and say like, yes, sure, Biden won the election, right? Like Biden, he did what he had to do. He's gonna take office, thank God. Um, but uh, maybe another candidate could have gotten us the Senate, right? Like maybe another candidate would have cared to make the case for why we need the Senate. Maybe another candidate would have made the case that the Republican, like that, that Donald Trump is not this like, you know, deus ex machina that, that just like dropped into our lives, but that he is the, he is the natural endpoint of, of 40 years of Republican of policy and Republican rhetoric um, and Republican strategy. Uh, and, and so I just don't buy the argument that, that Warren and Sanders definitely would have lost. Maybe, right? But we don't, we don't know. And it just feels to me like we're always drawing like the wrong conclusions from the last election. Um, and so I would hate to see us draw the conclusion that a progressive cannot win nationally, because I just don't think that that's true. All right. Uh, I have to ask you, uh, about the youth vote. Uh, you mentioned the youth vote in passing and you've been on the show many times. Uh, the kids are all left talking about your book. The kids are all left, uh, and how the trends, uh, in the last few presidential elections have shown that younger voters, are more lefty or liberal, whatever the word is. Uh, did that trend continue in this last election? It did, yeah. So the 18 to 29 vote went something like 62, 37 for Biden. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was in line with, I think, what ex- expectations were. Um, I think there was, a, there was a bit of erosion in the um, 30 to 44 demographic, just based on the exit polling that I'm seeing right now. But it's important to note that that exit polling is not, been reweighted and finalized. And also that there are some organizations like Pew that do post-election analyses of how each group votes. Um, and so we, we just don't know what happened there, but, but in, in a couple of the exit polls, Biden only won that 30 to 44 group by, by seven or eight points, um, which would definitely be disappointing, I think. And, you know, ha- has to cause me to go back and and, and rethink some things. But uh, I mean, when you add those two groups together, you know, that's like a 20 something point win for everybody over under 44. And that's, that's about in line with, with what we were expecting. Um, again, the Republican strength and the Republican margins are drawn largely from older Xers and younger boomers, uh, people who are 45 to 64. Um, and they, you know, they came out reliably for the president, just like we thought they would. Um, they provided him, Pretty, pretty broad margins, and that helped chip away at Biden's strength with young voters, and it helped chip away at the inroads that Biden made with the oldest voters, the people over 65, who, for, I, I hope, obvious reasons, <laughs> um, shifted away from Trump a bit from 2016 to 2020, uh, because it you know, turns out that when you tell people you don't care if they die, <laughs> some of them will not vote for you anymore. Some of them still will, which is remarkable. Yeah. Um, but some of them won't. <laughs> uh, all right. And um, while we're on the, the subject of polling, uh, you've had now a month to think about the polls that uh, uh, had you a little more optimistic uh, than the results showed. 
So what's your sort of sense of polling uh, post-election? It's, it's, it's a mystery. I think it remains a mystery. Um, in the days immediately following the election, there were a bunch of polling analysts who converged on the idea that the problem with polling, the systematic problem with polling in the last few elections has been that um, sort of Republican-leaning low propensity voters, that is people who don't normally turn out, um, are disproportionately less likely to answer the phone for a pollster and disproportionately more likely to turn out specifically for Donald Trump. Um, and, that, and that that would explain, you know, why the polls were, were more off in 2016 than they were in 2018 when Trump was not technically on the ballot. Um, it explains why Trump did, I, I guess, we, we still don't have the final numbers, but it looks like about three and a half to four points better nationally than the final polling averages showed. Um, and there are people who buy this story and there are people who do not buy this story. Um, what I don't see is the people who don't buy that social trust story um, offering any sort of compelling alternative about why the polls have been so off in one specific region of the country, like over and over and over again since 2014. Um, because if you remember before the election, Wisconsin, which Biden won by 20,000 votes, um, you know, less than a point, Biden was up eight and a half or nine points in polling averages in Wisconsin. Um, like, it's just a huge miss. And the same story in Pennsylvania, where Biden was up six or seven points in the averages, and he won by a point, maybe a point and a half. And the same story in Michigan, where Biden was up, in some, in some polls, by 10, 10, 11 points, and he, and he just won by two or three. So um, there seems to be a specific problem with polling in, in the industrial Midwest, um, there's a specific problem with polling in Florida, which I just have no idea at this point what's going on there. <laughs> they were off by six points this time, this time around, and that's, um, I'm, I'm not sure anybody has a theory other than, and to the extent that anyone is still applying voter screens, you know, like how likely are, are you to vote, um, they are just excluding Trump voters from those screens, or the Trump voters are not, picking up the phone or third theory, the Trump voters are lying to them. Um, but I think that the evidence for the Trump voters intentionally lying to pollsters is pretty thin. Um, and I, I don't buy that. So, you know, I, I'm not ready to throw polling as an industry out, out the window, but I am concerned um, moving forward that like heading into 2022, if we're looking at polling, for Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Michigan for these, these really, really critical governor's races um, that we're going to go into election night just having just frankly, absolutely, absolutely no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. But I'm not going to be comfortable with anything under like a 10 point lead in those states. Um, just, just given what's happened in, in, in the last three cycles, I think, I think all the polling firms are, are hard at work trying to figure out, well, some of them are hard at work. <laughs> some of them don't care. Right. They're like, you're going to run my survey anyway. Right. And my name's going to get out there. So what do I care? Mm-hmm. But, but I think the good ones are concerned about the reputation. Uh, you know, our friend Nate Cohn at the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's such frustration with an election night. But he, he, his stuff was just as wrong as anybody else's was. Yeah. Um, you know, not, not necessarily his, like, overall forecast of the election, but the, but the individual polls that the New York Times did in conjunction with Siena College were also not very good in some of these key states. And so... Um, I think everybody's trying to figure it out. You know, one big problem is just, just nobody answers the phone anymore. Yeah. I mean, in the eighties, in you had 70, 80% response rate. And now it's like, in some cases, one or 2% of people 
will answer the phone. So you got to spend way more money to reach fewer people. And then you introduce all these uncertainties because, uh, because given the, the small number of pe- people that, that you reach in order to weight the sample uh, to attain certain demographic or, or, you know, education balance or whatever, you know, you may be drawing too much of an inference from the voters that you do reach. And I think that's the, that's the low social trust theory, right? It's like, um, you know, we know that, that white people with a college degree vote very differently than white people without a college degree at this point. The real question is like, if you get one of those non-college educated white people on the phone, are they actually representative of that group as a whole? Or is that non-college educated white person, you know, more likely to answer the phone and that's more likely to vote democratic than the non-college educated white voter who just will not talk to a pollster at full stop on the story. Um, and so I think that, you know, unfortunately we're just going to have to wait for the next couple of cycles to see whether this is exclusively a Trump effect. Um, that is when he's on the ballot, if there's a certain number of, uh, you know, brainwashed white people who will show up to vote for him, who will not come out in any other kind of election. And, um, I'd, I'd be lying to you if I said I had a strong instinct about that either way, but it's something I'm very interested to see what will happen. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, uh, MAGA. I, I, the, the group of people who are uh, blindly loyal to Donald Trump that I effectively uh, call MAGA. I've never seen anything like it in all my years of following politics. Uh, the closest I can see see in terms of loyalty would be uh, black voters in Chicago in the 80s and their allegiance to Harold Washington. Uh, I could I have far greater understanding for that allegiance than MAGA's <laughs> allegiance to Donald Trump. Uh, and uh, it's, it's far more fervent uh, than I ever imagined. Uh, it uh, survived four years, horrific years. It's as strong as ever. Uh, MAGA is leading the charge uh, for the notion that this election uh, was stolen, a complete fraud, fraudulent claim, and they, they've embraced it anyway without evidence. They'll, embrace, they'll do anything Donald Trump tells them, regardless of what the evidence is right in front of them. They'll flip their position on an issue in a heartbeat. If Donald Trump were to come out tomorrow for the legalization of all drugs, MAGA would go with them. And uh, it's, I have no doubt in my mind that that would be the case. And I also have no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump just might do that one day. Um, It's scary uh, and perplexing at the same time to me. What's your general theory about the allegiance and loyalty of 45% of the American voter to uh, a grifter named Donald Trump? You know, the theory, the operating theory, I think, is that that partisanship is just so strong um, that people will fit the facts of the real world into the narrative that that they want about it. Um, and so in, in the MAGA mind, um, Donald Trump took decisive action to ban travel from China and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And Donald Trump took decisive action, you know, to, to address the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time as he's convinced half of them that COVID-19 is a hoax and that they don't have to worry about it and that they shouldn't wear masks. Um, it, it's just, um, it's frustrating because it feels to me like, People like there's like 70 something million people that are so 
like coked out on the, on the bath salts of partisanship <laughs> that, they're, that they're incapable of looking at the world and looking at how a politician has performed and saying, you know, I don't care for this after all. You know, like, the, the, like there's a line that can be crossed here. And it seems like what Donald Trump has done is he has removed that line. Um, that is that he has convinced the overwhelming majority of rank and file Republicans that he can do no wrong, um, that the, you know, that the quest to own the libs, uh, you know, to, to punish Colin Kaepernick and, uh, you know, HBO and, uh, you know, the liberal elites and the professors, uh, all these people that, that, that these folks have had these, uh, these resentments against for so long, um, that there's no, there's, no, there's no way that he can be so bad at his job that it's not worth it to prosecute these other uh, cultural grievances against leftists and liberals and city dwellers and, uh, you know, socialists and anarchists and whatever, whatever the boogeyman of the moment is. Um, I think that what he has done is he has, has successfully consolidated his, his control over, over the Republican mind and turned the whole party into just like an apparatus for grievance. Um, and that's how they keep people in line. It's how they serve what remains the, the backbone of the Republican Party. And the, the reason it continues to exist is that it serves the donor class. Um, the Republican Party is a vehicle for the upward redistribution of, of wealth in the United States. That is why the, the, the key backers of the Republican Party, who probably think that Donald Trump is nuts, continue to, to open their wallets for him. Um, and that's why they're not objecting to all of this post-election nonsense, because they got everything that they wanted out of him. You know, they got the tax cut, they got the corporate tax cut, and now they've got a generation-long grip on the federal judiciary. And from you know, the view of this sort of enlightened, you know, I can see that this guy is a clown, but I'm going to go along with it, um, is, that, is that he delivered for them. Um, the view from the rank and file is, is frankly, I don't have an answer for you on that. Um, I, I, I simply don't have an answer for why more people cannot think for themselves, except to say that Republicans have created a very effective propaganda machine that operates on multiple levels. It operates at the level of social media, where you know where your where your mom and your grandparents are, are spending time. Um, it operates on the level of broadcast news. Um, they've consolidated control over local news networks, and um, and. And they've created these alternatives to the to the mainstream media, right? So your your average MAGA person doesn't care what CNN or New York Times says. Like Trump has convinced them that it's all it's all hoaxes and lies. All they care about is what's on Fox. Now they're mad at Fox, and they only care about what's on Newsmax and OAN. It's a it's a constantly moving target. Um, and the target moves with with Donald Trump. Um, and so my only hope of of sort of breaking the vice grip of that kind of conspiratorial thinking and paranoia. On, on such a large segment of the population is, is that is that Trump himself will depart the scene. But I, I don't have a ton of confidence in that either because you have these, as you brought them up earlier, these Marjorie Taylor Greens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who are, uh, she's crazy. I mean, these are crazy people, right? Like they believe in a, a conspiracy that Democrats were running an international sex trafficking ring out of a pizza restaurant. It's just stuff that if you stop and think about it for like two seconds, it's yeah. just, how does this make any sense at all? You know, yeah. it's crazy. This is, um, so, uh, this goes a little bit beyond my expertise. You know, I, I don't understand how, how conspiracies consolidate their, their control over people's minds. That's my son. Say hi to my son. Yes. He's baffled <laughs> by MAGA as well. He's also baffled by MAGA. He doesn't know it yet. 
um, but he's very hostile to the whole movement, and uh, he will not be he will not be one of those people then. Okay, I trust you on uh, on that one. And uh, all right, uh, so uh, before we leave, I'm gonna rest uh, two more predictions from you. Uh, we, we did a whole show, which I'm sure you've uh, forgotten. Uh, David Ferris's predictions. Uh, it ran. It's a very popular show. <laughs> it's got a lot of hits. <laughs> uh, none of the, I, the show is was more, way more successful than the predictions. Um, but uh, that said, we have uh, two uh, Georgia senatorial. Uh, elections on the horizon and you probably won't be back in the show uh, until after that election which was is it officially january 5th i want to say yeah, um, yeah. early voting has already started well lord knows they could get a, a a judge to rule against early voting lord knows what the republicans are going with this so your prediction in georgia who will be victorious uh in those elections Sure. Yeah. Just by the way, I forget nothing. I, I know what I said. I said 53 seats for the Democrats. Okay. Um, and now the best case scenario is 50. Now, Mia right. Culp, I mean, did anybody think that Susan Collins was going to win? You know, like, no, no nothing about that. Um, I wasn't surprised by Cal Cunningham losing in North Carolina. Um, I wasn't, you know, that surprised by, you know, when we lost some of the red state races. Um, I was surprised by the margins, but that's what happens when you have a systematic polling error. Um, you know, I, you're not going to like this, okay? But my prediction is <laughs> is that Warnick is going to win and Ossoff is going to lose. Wow. So we're, we're going to fall one agonizing seat short of a Senate majority. That's what I see based on the poll. Now, both Ossoff and Warnock, I think, are leading in polling averages. Um, Warnock by more than Ossoff. My, my fear is that Ossoff was also leading the polls before the election. Um, and so there just seems to be like a John Ossoff effect where people don't like him <laughs> and that he's not a great candidate and that I wish that we, that, you know, that we had run someone else. Uh, Stacey Abrams did, did God's work in other ways, but I think that she would have done better too. So um, uh, I'd be happy to be pleasantly surprised, but what I would, if, you know, if you're listening to this show, I, I would brace yourself and God, I don't, I would love to talk to the human being who splits their vote between, you know, the votes for Warnick, but also David Perdue, but they, somewhere out there, they are there. They are there. <laughs> That's uh, insane. They were there. they were there on the general election day, like somebody yeah. did it. Um, and so I don't have That's a lot insane. of confidence that, that some, you know, that two or 3% of Georgians are going to change their minds about Asaf and Purdue between now and election day. Um, and so that'll be, that'll be terrible, but um you know, it's still obviously it's going to be close. I think both both races will be quite close, and it's worth uh, it's worth working for and working the phones. I don't really know whether I'd, I recommend sending a bunch of money through ActBlue or whatever because that didn't seem to do much. <laughs> and I think that there's a saturation point where yeah. people in particular states start to resent um, the intervention from national political elites who who want to influence the outcome of Senate elections. But um, you know, your, your blood, sweat, and tears are still welcome in terms of making phone calls and writing postcards and, um, you know, maybe carefully donating money here and there. But I don't think that money's going to make the difference here, to be honest. I think it's really just, it's about messaging. It's about who turns out and can we mobilize our, our base again um, just, just weeks after the election. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. And I have my doubts about that. Um, I'm an optimist at heart, you know, and so I, I hope that we sweep them. I really do. 
but uh, but I'm I'm ready to accept that that we don't. All right. Well, let me put my predictions out there, folks. I want you to take these predictions, go to Vegas, and put the money down. You win. Okay. <laughs> Sweep for the Democrats in Georgia. Yeah, you heard it, folks. Sweep for the Democrats in Georgia. Go take that money. Go to Vegas. And if you lose, uh, don't blame me. It's not my fault. You shouldn't have gone to Vegas in the first place. Uh, all right. So the next time you come on. Stay home. Stay home. Play. You shouldn't go anyway. Uh, the next time you come on, we'll talk about if your prediction comes true. Then the, the conversation will shift to, can Joe Biden talk Mitt Romney <laughs> or Susan Collins, maybe, into joining his coalition? That will be where we're at. Uh, and uh, and can he keep Joe Manchin from going to the Republicans? Oh, God, the machinations continue. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. All right, David, take care. Stay safe and sound. Uh, have a happy New Year's and uh, Merry Christmas and Kwanzaa and Hanukkah, whatever it is that you celebrate. And uh, good Festivus. Okay. Good, yes. Uh, thank you, Larry, David. Uh, and um, we'll see you in the New Year's, all right? Yeah, I look forward to it, Ben. I hope that the next time that I'm on the show, we are discussing another aberrant prediction of mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I hope it's a sweep at Georgia. All right, that's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.